0: Uh, this time around we're going to be looking at White of the Eye, which is a 1987 thriller by writer-director Donald Camel. It's the story of Joan and Paul White, a couple living in Arizona, who find themselves involved in a series of brutal local killings. This was your recommendation, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, well I was I was hoping to ambush you with it. I thought it would be one of those films that maybe you hadn't seen or heard of and it turns out you have like a whole
0: history with the film. <laughs> did you did you see it at the cinema? Did you say that? I did, but not when it came out again. Oh, had no idea about it in 87, and then I read about it in the 1988 edition of Nightmare Movies by Kim Newman. Oh, yeah. He gave it a really good sort of passing paragraph. And then when I was studying in London in 91, it was a triple bill of serial killer movies. Oh, right. Uh, there was This and Henry Portrait of Serial oh, Killer, yeah. oh, which was, was just doing the rounds then in yeah, London. Yeah. And Motel Hell, I think, was the third one. Uh, and I went to see that at the Scala, as was, when they used to do, like, you know, triple bills and all-dayers, and got to see it in the cinema. Oh, very cool. And then, by chance, um, picked up an ex-rental, like, within the same year, um, in a VHS store. Wow. So, nice. I've had it around the house for, for a long time. Yeah, okay, so that, that didn't work, did it, the ambush? <laughs> but I haven't seen it for a long, long time. Like, I must have watched it on tape once, I think I got it on like a, a Dutch or a German DVD at one point, which I never watched. And then the Blu-ray that Arrow brought out fairly recently. Oh, yeah. Which is the one that you got me for Christmas as a surprise gift. Yeah. I was like, you know, I got it, mate. I saw
1: this probably when I was 14 or 15. I'd seen it reviewed probably on Barry Norman and made the connection with The Man Who Fell to Earth, very mm-hmm. loose connection through Nicholas Rogan performance. And so talked my mum into hiring it from the video shop for me. Okay. And then uh, me and my mate Ian Williams bunked off school and went round his house and watched it in his living room. But we got about five minutes in and then this girl he was seeing from the fifth year turned up as well. So she'd bunked off. So they literally bunked off upstairs and I sat and watched it alone in his <laughs> living room. after. Bunking the off. life was set. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not far <laughs> off. Yeah. And I was like, why on earth would they want to go upstairs and, like, mess around when there's this really,
0: like, weird, exciting movie to watch? But... So how long has it been since you've seen it? Um, you must have seen it again since then. Or...
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've sort of seen it on and off, you know, since it came out. Um, last time I watched it, I think I took my partner to see um performance at the BFI maybe eight years ago or something. And then I think we watched it after that mm. just to see what he did next. I mean... I've never seen Demon Seed and I've seen Wildside.
0: Um I'm I'm the other way round. I I think Demon Seed was probably the first of his films that I ever saw. Oh, okay. It had like a BBC2 screening when I was, you know, very young and just obsessed with anything to do with science fiction. Mm. So I remember watching that at least at least once. Um, so I knew of that before I knew of who Donald Camel was. Yeah right right. There's a few
1: clips of it in the Camel documentary that's on the Arrow Blu-ray.
0: I've got. Is, this is it downstairs? Is it? I've, is it a good watch though? It's a good watch. Um, I I watched it again the other day off the back of watching this, mm-hmm. and making notes for this because um, I was just interested to see it again, and it's not as good as I remembered. Oh yeah okay. But it has very, very good things in it. It's got a fantastic score by Jerry Fielding. Oh, right, okay. Really, really incredibly good score. Yeah, yeah. Julie Christie's really committed. There's a really nice bit of production design in it, but it does feel like one of those crap paperbacks that you oh yeah, okay. read when you're about 17. Sure. Um, White of the Eye. So
1: what do you think, having not seen it for a while, how do you think it holds up now when you, when you look back at it?
0: It, it holds up pretty well. It, it The things I like about it now are not the things that it's perhaps most famous for at the time. Yeah, I,
1: I was going to say along the similar lines, yeah, all the sort of... I'd remembered it being filled with murders. There's only two in there, and, you know, one is pretty scary, but the other one is
0: quite abstract. Yeah, it, it was... Because it was described, you know, Kim Newman described it as sort of almost cubist and, and semi-abstract, and... I, I do remember it being heavily stylized. But when, when I started watching it it was I mean, one of my main notes here is that all the worst material in the film is in the first five, ten minutes. Yeah, right. I think it, it has a reputation of, of being in the same sort of vein as a like a, a Dario Argento type thing, super stylized, um on, on the verge of misogyny, cruelty to women, but extremely artfully presented.
1: No, I, but that's not what thing. I found at all, actually. Well, no,
0: but that was the thing. Like in the first five minutes, I was, I could really really do without seeing the the first murder in the super you know the super stylized one in the super stylized yeah, apartment yeah. with the eighties music. Hmm. If I never see anything like that again, it'll be too soon. Yeah, sure, sure. And all the all the kind of bad stuff in the movie for me that I wasn't enjoying this time around was in the first like five ten minutes. Yeah. But then when it settles down to sort of more domestic character-based stuff. I thought it was yeah. really, really excellent. It's
1: great. The relationship is, you know, it's so yeah. compelling, isn't it? And, mm. like, how mature that relationship is and how real it feels and how, uh, how much of an authentic bubble they seem to be in, especially when, you know, spoiler, but when she discovers that he is the killer. Yeah. Instead of just, like, shopping him to the cops, you know, she wants to know why and how and to understand it more and mm. to see if somehow it's her fault or... You know, I just I, I love the fact that that's not the end of it, like, yeah. and that she's still kind of in love with him.
0: And I thought that th- throughout, though, all the stuff you know, there's a lot of stuff that could have just in a in a. A lesser version of this sort of film would have been really, really perfunctory, like you know, the cops, procedural stuff, and interviews, yeah. and even basic family stuff. Like probably one of my favourite scenes in the film is is that immediately warmed me back to it was was what happens after the first murder and you're introduced to Joan and her daughter Danielle, mm-hmm. and you get that lovely bit of sort of unconventional parenting where she's yeah, explaining yeah. to her what antisocial means, yeah, sure. and it's you know it's it's quite a shocking little scene, but it's it's just really, really beautifully handled and really That's sets it. them up nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, from that point on, I was just warmed to the whole thing all that stuff that that could be really kind of humdrum if it you know if people weren't cast proper and if it weren't written interestingly is is really compelling so it is a bit of um, a who's who of time really isn't it yeah it's like where do you start <laughs> you know i mean I
1: think Terry Rawlins is a great place to start yeah. isn't he
0: he's um yeah at the at the sort of creative peak of his career as well I think you know obviously there's alien and then he was working through interesting, gradually bigger movies in the ACs have got legend, Yentl, Blade Runner, Chariots of Fire. Um and it's before his nineties switch to big budget, slightly less interesting films that you wouldn't ever discuss, like Golden Eye, The Saint, Entrapment, The Core. Sure, sure. There's um there's The a lo- Cash, the Cash the it, Cash, yeah. the Cash <laughs> Reading sort of Jim Clark, who's one of his peers, reading Jim Clark's autobiography, there's this similar period in his life where you just get sucked into those where you're such a, you know, you're a great creative editor, but you're also an extremely safe pair of hands and you get sucked into those big budget jobs one after the other. But yeah, Terry Rawlins, one of the kings. Yeah, that's Uh, it. And then we've got, there's there's some interesting pairings on here. Um, I noticed in the credits when I was first watching it, there was um, an Alan Jones listed as lighting cameraman. That's right which is always like a um, flags-up pretentious director to me. That's what Kubrick used to call his DOP. Credited his DOP on Eyes Wide Shut, which basically says, you're a technician, I'm yeah, going to sure decide sure. what the shots are like. But then you've also got an actual director of photography or photograph by Larry McConkey, who's Yeah, king of
1: cams, isn't he? Yeah,
0: and does an awful lot of cam in this.
1: Yeah, so apparently they shot it two ways, this film. So there's, I guess, a bunch of footage out there that's not shot on steadicam. So Okay, yeah, and I don't know if they ever edited that together or if that was just to sort of placate the uh, personalities on set, but apparently he'd hired them both. And when they turned up for the recce just before shooting, they were both like, hi, I'm the cinematographer. And the other one was like, no, I'm the cinematographer. <laughs> and they sort of just decided between them to work out the best way to shoot the film together because they were just like well we're committed to the project let's let's work it out
0: yeah there's, there's a 1990s documentary that's a special feature on the recent release of this much is made of how Donald Camel liked to create chaos that he could then mould and manipulate on the set so it's it's theorised that hiring two DOPs was part of creating that chaos
1: I think maybe he just wanted to play with a steadicam because it's everywhere isn't it you know every tiny little shot has a float backwards or forwards or yeah. I like it to be honest, that sort of look. It's very kind of um, fragmented and unstable.
0: I like it a lot. In I'm surprised that people don't use it more now, particularly these days when movies are more handheld than they've been for a while.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean there's there's something quite scrappy about the technique in this film, you know, it's not sort of I wouldn't say it was storyboarded or, you know, made with precision i think it's kind of they're, they're winging it a bit and you yeah. do get that energy
0: you do get a lot of found moments don't you yeah and it does kind of remind me
1: of like my probably my favorite scrappy movie of a good filmmaker using bad technique is um bring me the head of alfredo garcia which is just like a real mess but somehow it gets away with it and i think the same with this you see like Donald Campbell's lack of like formal filmmaking education, it r- is really highlighted in the interrogation scene where all the eye lines are off. <laughs> People are looking all over the place, and you're trying to work out who they're talking to. Yeah, and then you know there's a cut to a character that you didn't even know was in the room, and it's just like, what is happening here, man?
0: This is terrible. And there's this there's a, a very brief scene which has got one of the. I suppose if you're a cult movie follower and you love Donald Campbell, you'd say, "Oh, you know, it's just it's just interesting break from the standard formal technique." But there's a scene where um, Joan takes Danielle swimming. You get the wide shot of Danielle at the other end of the pool, yeah, hesitating yeah. to jump in. Then you cut to a reverse angle of Joan in a sort of mid shot, mm-hmm. and then you cut back to another wide, which you're automatically expecting to be Danielle far away, and then it's Joan in a wide, mm-hmm. and it really, really jars. Yeah, sure. And you could say it's interesting, but it's also quite. If it jars really yeah, badly, it's bad.
1: I think there's a lot of sequences in this which feel like there was just no other option mm. in the edit.
0: And there's a lot of stuff in this. I suppose whilst we're just in the formal section and we're talking about Terry Rawlings, there's a lot of interesting creative edits, but there's a lot of stuff that feels a bit film studenty that I feel was Donald Campbell's hand rather mm, than sure, Rawlings. Sure. A lot of fairly pointless short dissolves from the end of scenes. Yeah, Very, very short dissolves from the end of one scene into the beginning of the next. There's a lot of sort of interesting creative dissolves like there's a little series of dissolves at the end of where you've been cross-cutting between Paul visiting Anne Mason you know, mm-hmm. trying to seduce him and uh, Joan and... What's Joan Mike. Joan and Mike, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's a little like dissolve between the four of their faces at the end of that whole yeah, sequence yeah, which is really, really nice. Yeah, yeah. But then there's other ones that just feel really hokey like the very final freeze frame on Joan and then you get kind of this iris down with the refinery <laughs> shots behind her and it's like
1: what are you doing? Yeah, sure, sure. But I mean that is part of the film's charm I think you know, that it is kind of fragmented and scrappy and a bit messy, and I think it gets away with it because, you know, at the heart of it, actually, the relationship is so plausible. And, you know, I, I'd say this is probably the, like the first film I saw that was about serial killers. I don't think I'd seen anything before this. Yeah, I think it's set a benchmark because it just felt so real you know it felt like oh i could be a serial killer if i wanted <laughs> you don't have to be you know some superhero like uh, hannibal lecter you know you could just be like a normal bloke and go out and do a little bit of killing oh interesting that was been
0: inspiring for <laughs> yeah it was yeah it was a real turning point i should flag up at this point that i'm complaining about things being fragmented and scrappy and stuff that is not a problem for me per se if it works. Yeah. yeah. I'm not somebody who watches like Nicholas rogue films and goes, why is he cutting like that? This yeah, is all yeah, yeah. wrong. This is, this is out. You know, if it works, it works. It's yeah, great. But it. if it doesn't work, then okay, hats off to it for trying. But mm. if it doesn't work, it doesn't feel right. But then, fresh
1: eyes on this, you feel like it, it kind of. Yeah.
0: That, you know, there's, off. there's things in it that, that have probably, there's experiments in it in technique that have probably dated a little mm-hmm. and, you know, don't feel right. They might've, felt daring and gotten a pass at the time for being daring. But now, because so much time has passed, they don't feel quite right. But overall, I'd say it's, you know, it's like a 70% success rate. For me. Yeah, OK, good. Uh, that'll do. Um, and just going back to the sort of twin roles here. Um, obviously, you have Donald Camel's credit, but then in the end credits, you've got a, a fairly prominent credit for his, his wife and co-writer and creative partner, um, Sheena Camel. She's credited as dialogue director. Oh yeah, okay. I mean, if she were just dialogue coach, I would imagine it would be dialogue coach, but this leads me to think that she'd had a significant input on it. Well, set.
1: A, what, there's uh, an interview with Kathy Moriarty where she's saying that they were, you know, kind of like Billy Wilder, they were obsessing over each you couldn't swap. She says you couldn't swap and for the mm-hmm. and that they were really specific about every line of dialogue. So maybe she was almost like a continuity person.
0: I don't know. I mean, you'd say continuity or you'd say dialogue coach. I mean, dialogue director suggests a lot more input.
1: Well, if you're married to someone, you're going to give them the biggest <laughs> credit that you that you can. She's, she's Le- got a co-writer credit already.
0: I've seen Performance, and that's co-directed with Nick Rogue. Mm-hmm. And I've seen Demon Seed, and I've seen <laughs> White of the Eye. I, I've never had any inclination to go near Wildside, and mm. I'm not a Donald Camel fan Completed to, to watch myself, one more film to to put myself through what it's looks one like more a film. horribly horribly exploitative dated experience yeah but it seems to me that that this is if it's between this and Demon Seed where he had kind of solo director yeah, yeah. and this is where his wife is involved in directing I would say that she's actually made a strong impression here oh yeah okay I'd say that her input has has contributed to the film yeah yeah. Because Demon Seed has has a fabulous central performance, but all of the other performances are pretty inert, mm-hmm. and all of the kind of bit parts are just nothing. Um, so the fact that look, pretty much every supporting role in this kind of comes alive and is is really right, nicely right. cast and oh, interesting. I see.
1: Yeah, I see. How you joining that all together? Yeah. Yeah. Good observation.
0: How do you feel about the music for this film? I feel it's it's pretty uh, pretty weird.
1: Some of it, you know, I think they're trying to sort of. Emulate Native American Spirituality And uh, You know Apache uh, uh, Arizona Kind of Feel
0: It's a shame However That they're trying to Emulate that With with Mid 80s Synthesizer Presets Mm -hmm. um, And Lindrum sounds And electric guitar (laughs) it's Nick Mason From Pink Floyd Yeah yeah. His then creative Partner Rick Penn Mm -hmm. From 10CC Is it really? Yeah, Yeah Ah I did not know For me it's one of the worst soundtracks I've ever heard, yeah, right. um, and it's not just because it's so dated. With those, you know, it's it's forty something men playing with, you know, the most expensive technology and mm. getting nothing out of it. There's there's something about that <laughs> which is so typical of sort of the mid eighties soundtracks. I'm surprised there hasn't been like a, a luxury vinyl edition of this for hipsters because it's such a horrible soundtrack. But <laughs> but it just it just I'm surprised it didn't dampen my enthusiasm for the film more because it, it really does a disservice to a lot of it.
1: Oh yeah, it's this another one that goes on the list of films that need rescoring.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know, it might strip the film of some of its 80s character and some of its eccentricity, but it's it's a re- for me it's a terrible, terrible soundtrack. Okay, okay. Uh, but I do
1: like the inclusion of um, Mahler and Hot Chocolate mm-hmm. and um, uh, who is it that did Pagliacci, the opera that he's singing at the beginning that he's singing is about putting on a mask, you know, and going out and pretending to be yourself, even though you're heartbroken, and uh, no. and to just kind of keep singing and you know entertain the crowd, even though in reality you're feeling something completely different.
0: Oh, leads adds another extra textual level yeah, is, to, so. to. I I was I was quite irritated at that scene. I find. When you introduce a character singing, singing along opera. To opera, yeah, I know this guy's an eccentric. <laughs> yeah, he's crazy. Likes opera. <laughs> he's a free spirit. Yeah, that's it. Um, and as a nerdy note, there's another, there's a, there's another sort of pairing credit. You've got George Fenton as music supervisor. I still don't quite understand what that role is, but George Fenton's a you know George Fenton? Uh, the name living story, legend. Yeah. He he um, started out in another role, um, which I should know. But he he was basically a mainstay at the BBC, um, and he did a lot of music. He still does Ken Loach movies to this day. Scores those uh, all of Alan Bennett type stuff for the BBC throughout the seventies and eighties. All right, okay. And then gradually kind of graduated to this hollywood career where he's doing big movie scores you know, like uh, groundhog day and stuff oh, yeah, like okay. that very interesting guy who i know almost nothing about just looking at his career mm-hmm. and you know the number of credits he pops up in three things I watch. This? uh he was music supervisor but i don't know how that role works maybe he was producing for um whatever nick the... and rick nick and rick
1: so that kind of brings us to donald camel himself the uh Writer, director, cult, uh, yeah. filmmaker. I mean, there's been a lot written and said about Donald Camel. I, I mean, I have to say, you know, one of the slight disappointments of revisiting this was looking through all the special features and learning more about Donald Camel and enjoying the film less because I knew more about him.
0: <laughs> there's something in me is tempted to wrongly call him a dilettante. Yeah, because he's it's a, his lifestyle was was more of a focus for his life than actual filmmaking. But that's wrong because he did try to get a lot of projects off the ground and he was writing a lot and it wasn't happening and he did have a lot of bad luck. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, he
1: just also, f- after knowing a little bit more about his background, he just felt like he was kind of a posh a- aristocrat, you know, lucky enough to be born a time that lets him reach kind of his early 20s in the middle of the 60s and moving in the right kind of circles yeah, to, to having, really kind having of a, a golden be ticket avant-garde and, yeah. yeah that's it and the sort of financial safety net to play and play and play I think given all of that freedom and opportunity if this is the best, the best that he could do you know then it, that's a waste you know and seeing like and I have to say seeing some of his paintings that he did as a teenager mm-hmm. they were incredible and all of that talent Didn't translate into anything really
0: substantial. Again, it's one of those things. This like Donald Camel. When I was in my twenties, he was sort of he was on the he was on the syllabus. Do you know what I mean? You had you had to be into him. He's one of those guys that
1: he killed himself, and I think that sort of automatically uh,
0: draws a lot of attention
1: to you. I think if if he if he'd have just withered away and died, Mm. nobody probably would have noticed.
0: There was already a cult sort of built up around him before his death, though. But it's just you know filmmaking isn't. It isn't like painting. It's not a pure art form that comes from one person. It's a craft that involves it's collaborative, isn't it? It's a you collaborative need 100, effort. Well,
1: not hundred people, but you know, at the very least, you need like five or six other people.
0: Yeah, and you need to you need to collaborate and you need to learn the craft. It is actually a lot of a lot of practical work on a set doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, okay, so Demon Seed was a difficult experience. You had a difficult time shooting it. But, you know, filmmakers have difficult experiences. Mm-hmm. And if you want to learn the craft and make better films and learn things that will feed into what you could do with your own projects, then, you know, don't isolate yourself as, as as a pure artist and then expect the projects to, to happen for you. Yeah, exactly. You have to be in there moving in that circle. So there's, you know... You
1: know but also I think that there's probably that short window of time where he... he peaked in terms of you know influence and social circle and mm. you know performance and then like you know nothing for years he could have like easily capitalized on that yeah actually look at Nick Rogue, he was able to go straight from that to from performance to walk
0: about yeah don't look now Although fell to Earth. he was more established uh, as a cinematographer as a, cin- a, cinematographer yeah, sure. and a safer pair of hands but mm. Even so.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting and frustrating and disappointing all at the same time, isn't
0: mm. it? I'm, I'm never big on hero worship, especially when that hero worship is based on could have beens and might have beens yeah. and imaginary projects and imaginary movies. I, I find it hard to get, you know, when people write enormous essays and, and think pieces about, you know, Michael Reeves, which mm. find a general, mm-hmm. you know, on the basis of two and a half movies. Sure, sure. How. how astonishing a talent he was. In my 20s I would have kind of just by nature gone along with this thing but in in later life I'm just finding it difficult. I prefer people who have done a significant amount of work that proves that they're heroes. Yeah, there's so, something really
1: nice about it, like when uh, Terence Malik came back after yeah. years away and this kind of idolatry and the lost master of American cinema and he came back and was like,
0: "Yes, with a masterpiece. <laughs> I am a master. Thank yeah. you.
1: Thank you for waiting." There's an interview with Donald Campbell on the um, uh, on the Blu-ray, and he's wearing a T-shirt that says "Murder is an art form."
0: Yeah, I saw that. Fuck off. <laughs> I honestly, come on. Yeah, yeah. That, I I did I, you know, like. I groaned.
1: I, I wasn't sure what yeah. your reaction would be, but yeah, fuck off, pretty much. Some. I
0: I did like what he was saying. I did like his kind of explanation of you know there's there's a whole side of art. There's a whole theory that art should be immoral and amoral, and mm-hmm. but then if you present that wearing a T-shirt saying "Murder is an art form." So, yeah, you're just reducing whatever you're saying to glib nonsense yeah, by wearing that. It's the eighties. Yeah, despite throwing shade on Donald Camel, I do <laughs> still like the film a lot.
1: I do as well. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'm just not that interested in Donald Camel. Having learned a bit more about him, I yeah. don't think it's like uh, uh, as interesting as let's say Cathy Moriarty and her career. You know, I think she is much more interesting yeah. as a kind of frustratingly lost talent than Donald Camel actually, and. You know, I do like this film and I think part of that is because, you know, for a long time I was the only person I knew that had ever seen it. And it was a nice one to have in your back pocket for like obscure how oh, Yeah, watch this for an obscure movie and, you know, for it to be kind of, it is a stimulating, it was, scrappy, it, unpredictable experience as a piece of cinema. And I, I always liked that about it. Yeah. And having researched Donald Campbell a bit more, I'm less interested in him. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's happier to watch it as a movie and its own yeah, rather it. than part of some legend. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay, should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. We've been trying to avoid like thorough A to Z analyses mm. going right the way through the film, but I think this one sort of merits it. We'll we'll just do it in less forensic detail than.
1: I mean, starting with the opening credits. Did you notice on the Arrow release there's an alternate opening credits? I couldn't tell the difference.
0: I couldn't see the difference either. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. It's um interesting visual metaphor. It's the soaring eagle preying on a lesser creature, um, and then soaring over the it's like the opening shot is the truck on the highway and that gives yeah. you the, the metaphorical link between Paul and this eagle. And you've got the eagle soaring and its point of view shots of the desert and the refinery and mm. stuff like that. And then you kind of end up in the city of Tucson where you get the um do you like do you like the opening credits? I think they're pretty good.
1: It's all right, yeah, yeah. The um the flashes to deep blue. I found a little bit jarring, but as you get into the film and you see that blue is one of the colours on the kind of compass point ritual display Mm. that he puts out after each murder, then it makes more sense. I wasn't quite sure what they were there for to begin with.
0: Mm. And we come to Tucson and you have kind of, I guess... A light, a light comedy introduction, don't you? So one of the dated, victims. isn't it? yeah. It's one of the rich housewives who's shopping, emerging from a shopping mall. High heels, long High heels. legs. It's but like ZZ Top <laughs> lyrics, isn't it? Yeah. And again, as I said before, like the, for me, the worst stuff in this movie is in the first yeah, 10 sure. minutes. But you get this kind of comedy sequence of the valet carrying her boxes and packages, kind of watching her legs. And then you cut from, from his face to his point of view of the legs. And mm-hmm. then you cut back. And you kind of over egg it and do about three do it about three or four times. Yeah, it's and like, she
1: reaches the car and stops and does like a little Paris twist on on the ankles and yeah. then we get her sort of turning into shot and giving him a seductive smile. It's all like it's really, really ham fisted, isn't
0: it? Yeah. <laughs> but it's the it's the cuts back and forth three times. It's like once you've done the point of view and then the reverse angle, mm. you've done it, that's the joke. You don't need yeah, to repeat yeah, yeah. it four times. And then I guess I would imagine for a lot of arty horror fans the first murder is one of the highlights of the film Uh, over to you Uh, yeah not that you're an arty horror fan yeah
1: no I'm not Um, the only shot I like is the slow motion push into the microwave microwave door I thought that's a really kind of terrifying image but yeah then all the sort of
0: um, optically slowed down shots and yeah
1: and like uh, a meat cleaver into a rack of ribs and tomato sauce going across the table and mm-hmm. all of that felt really clunky
0: it did really feel like there was a lot of ideas about how to make this to make it seem more abstract mm, true. and then just trying to piece it together in the edit oh, I don't know it just feels really film school to me Yeah. and there's a whole, there was a whole branch throughout the 80s from like Tenebrae type thing sure. where you kind of go for sort of 80s modernist looking art murder thing, which, which struck a chord with a lot of horror fans at the time, but just seems pretentious, is that yeah. the word? Maybe, yeah, yeah. To, to try and kind of make something brutal into something glossy and artful. Yeah, I know it sounds they're funny. trying to
1: elevate it, aren't they? And it's just sort of, yeah. it, it sinks it really.
0: But then... Once that scene's over, then things really, really pick up. Mm. The scene I described earlier with Cathy Moriarty. I mean, you mentioned Cathy Moriarty before. This is... Yeah. It's... She's a movie star.
1: I know, I know. I and mean, It's really frustrating, isn't it? Because you think, you know, a kind of a teenage sensation when she did Raging Bull nominated for an Oscar. And then, you know, she's kind of scrappy parts. Then this.
0: I sh- after Raging Bull, she did that... Um... Neighbours movie with John Belushi but then she was attached to the the sequel to Chinatown and that was in development throughout the early 80s Two Jakes and she was attached to that and that and that sank and for some reason there's like you know a complete six year absence between I read somewhere that she had a really horrific car crash
1: and and was recovering from that for a long time
0: but you've got those six potential golden years Mm. where she could have been an absolute sensation
1: yeah, and she's so good in this, you know. She's r- so
0: good. I mean, the camera loves her. She looks absolutely stunning. And right it's a nice hands. look as well. Yeah,
1: like it's a real nice counterpoint to the plasticity of the eighties. You know, somebody that looks that real mm. and still beautiful and glamorous, but like really genuinely a real person. Yeah,
0: and she's got this kind of mischievous sense of humor that really, mm. really comes across. And the, the
1: darkness as well. And yeah, you know the empathy that she has for Paul, especially towards the end when she knows what he's been up,
0: what he's been up to. Mm.
1: To carry all of that off, yeah, like it's one of those really frustrating losses for us in the audience that she didn't do more starring roles.
0: But yeah, I mean, you feel watching this that not only is she great, but she's actually enjoying her time on screen and she's actually enjoying her performance. Mm. She's fantastic. And then we get to meet Paul White singing in his truck.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a sort of non-intro isn't it you know obviously it's like over the top uh, opera singing but also you can't quite see him because obviously they've got the camera stuck in the uh, passenger, passenger seat of the yeah. car yeah there's kind of no decent introduction considering how much screen time he gets later on how many kind of nice big wide shots and crotch close-ups that he gets throughout <laughs> the film that they couldn't have just found a really nice frame to to bring him to us yeah, we see Paul and Joan at home and Joan asks him to do his kind of echolocation trick where he sort of hums uh, in the living room and works out the best speaker placement for a, a stereo system. I'll do it. Do what? Come on, just do it for me. Please.
0: Okay, horn-loaded tweeters there, 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 and there. And all the bass out this end. (laughs) Joan is kind of a very relaxed, welcoming, warm present. You know, she's pouring a beer for them to share and kind of reclining, and he's slightly edgy and bouncing around the room a bit. Mm. He's in his post-murder come-down. Isn't he? Yeah, but you start you starting to see his eccentricities in this scene. You know, yeah, yeah. The things that mark him as not not just a regular kind of, you know, jeans and sweatshirt guy. He's mm-hmm. he's he, he is...
1: well, I think she comes off quite sort of classy and sophisticated from the outset. She's not, you know, some plus one, you know, and I think for her to be attracted to him and to stay with him, he needs to have more character than just, you know, mm. being an engineer.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We I mean we didn't talk about David Keith. I haven't got a great deal to say about him because I only I've only seen him in a few things and
1: yeah I mean I've only I saw him in An Officer and a Gentleman where I thought he was fantastic in that that's one of my you know if you talk about guilty pleasures I love An Officer and a Gentleman
0: is he the best friend in that
1: yeah the guy who kills himself in the shower spoiler <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry everyone. <laughs> What I know of his career is that maybe after this I think he directed and starred in a kind of uh, Indiana Jones, Romancing the Stone type thing. And then his career after that seems to be a lot of kind of supporting roles. There's a, a commentary track on the Arrow release of White of the Eye by Sam Umland. He did say that Keith David replied through his agent saying that he didn't want to talk ill of the dead. Oh, okay. To talk about Why of the Eye, and apparently they there was a lot of tension on set between them. China Camel she says that Donald loved how deep he went into character and how he stayed there and.
0: Yeah, but I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's like somebody who's putting himself into an alpha male role and having to play that with an with the actual alpha male of the production mm. together on set.
1: Yeah, he was Camel was always trying to explore like masculinity and I think he was sort of intimidated by masculine men as well you know I, I think he was one of the intelligentsia that he'd prefer to use his mind than his muscle.
0: Yeah you know, I say alpha male that's probably the wrong term but he, I would still feel that even if he was using his mind and not his muscle he still had to be the the most important mm. person in the room.
1: Yeah, there is, yeah there's something about that isn't there the battle between this especially on set in the real world they're both creative forces one is the you know the the puppet master and one is supposed to be the puppet, but when he's also a giant and he's playing a killer and yeah. he's probably like in the zone and probably quite terrifying day to day. I think that that's hard to sort of yeah. <laughs> hard to reconcile <laughs> that creative partnership, isn't it? It's going to be fraught. Okay, so back to the film. The next sequence is uh, uh, Mendoza, the police officer coming to see the crime scene. (laughs) It's a very strange performance, this guy, isn't it?
0: I really like it. It's a really colourful but nuanced performance. He's sort of jolly, isn't he? He's jolly and he's eccentric. um, And he... As a character has a sense of humour and he's played by an actor who clearly has a sense of humour too. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you know, there's a later scene where he first meets Paul. It's really, really nicely handled. He kind of the character has a sense of humour, but is also playing with that sense of humour to put the to put the suspect off, off yeah, their guard. Yeah, to put
1: him at ease so they can probe a little deeper, isn't he? Yeah,
0: and it isn't that clunky, wrong footing that you often get in these kind of procedurals. He is actually played like Art Evans plays it really, really well. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's nice that, you know, he's clearly a lot smaller than Paul Mm. and isn't intimidated by him. You know, he's happy to get close, isn't he? And and spar with him. They talk a little bit about electronics and audio equipment, you know. Yeah, it's nice. I just, I find the tone of it because you're so used to the sort of uh, detective being an archetype and he's really like the opposite of that.
0: Mm. There's something about the casting of all the sort of supporting police roles in this. Are really nice, slightly characterful performances. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's it. And they they seem like decent people. There's no, like, yeah. shitty cops. And they're all kind of doing the work and mm. try, trying to get the work done.
0: Yeah, even the guy who's talking to Paul in his truck as he pulls up at the house seems seems to be a fully rounded character.
1: Yeah, yeah. The structure of the film includes... Um, Lots of flashbacks ten to ten years ago where Joan is travelling cross-country with her boyfriend Mike and she feels like they're never going to get there and in fact she's seduced by Paul or you know, they, they sort of have a love affair, they fall in love and there's a sort of slight love triangle happening as Paul takes... It's
0: interesting you say they fall in love because a common interpretation is basically that Paul is, is the ultimate alpha male and he just has to take her he has to hunt and he has to win and he has to dominate and that's
1: yeah but I think that dismisses her agency you know she's a really smart woman and you know comes from the big city he's just like a little country bumpkin and I think she has to be at least a willing participant in that.
0: yeah absolutely I'm not saying she was she was taken against her will she Mm. she may well have fallen in love with him but I'm not I don't think he necessarily falls in love with her I don't think that's I don't think that's his motivation at this point should we talk, let's talk about the whole sort of flashback because these are peppered throughout the film. Yeah, that's it. Just such... they, they reveal enough to, to lend weight to the present day scenes each time. Yeah, that's you know, it. it's it. It's a gradual series of reveals. So it's a nice structure end. actually. It's pretty well yeah.
1: handled. And I like the sort of technical aspect with the bleach bypass. And... I wonder
0: if that was intended or if it was just, because the film has a very kind of hazy filtered look. I don't know if it's a, actually filters on the lenses or if it's just a byproduct of the film stock but i wonder if it was necessary to do something in post to make a distinction differentiate
1: i think somewhere in the supplementary materials somebody talks about donald always wrote bleach bypass in for flashback sequences like he was trying to make that a signature so oh yeah maybe there was some intent there. it seems like an obscure technical A piece of knowledge
0: for him to have. Bleach Bypass was always popular with um, pop video directors. Maybe it's something he picked up doing his U2 stuff. Yeah, that's right. It's an interesting technical choice to do Bleach Bypass because it makes things colder and bluer. And the 70s is not something ever thought of as cold and blue.
1: Especially not with hot chocolate blaring out on the soundtrack.
0: But yeah, it just does seem an odd kind of stylistic choice to go colder, blue, grey for the past. Mm -hmm. Especially when it's set in the mid-70s, which... To my mind, is always feverish and colourful, yeah, super saturated. It should be garish, shouldn't it? Yeah. Um. So they, yeah, uh, Jenny trashes Mike's eight-track player <laughs> in the car. It's weird because she puts a cigarette in it, and then he pauses seven up down. What's going to do more damage? So they they take the eight-track player to be fixed, and the local technician uh, passes it on to Paul. It's Paul's grandad, isn't it? The is not it? it? Yeah. I did think that um, Paul's entrance, silhouetted against the white light from outside with his big feather, feathery mullet. And yeah, that's it. Open neck shirt and medallion. Sexy, isn't he? It's just made me laugh out loud.
1: <laughs> yeah, he looks like one of those posters that you see from the 70s with like a giant swan and people stood on, on the wing as like the sunsets, psychedelic sunsets in the distance. I found
0: it a, a little bit unlikely that he would have this kind of self-image living in a small town repairing radios. But you know, I guess he's such an alpha male, he might have... And he did have a juvenile record of, of being a... you know, yeah, A tearaway. A tearaway and drugs experience, which might lead him to dress in this kind of Jim Morrisonish ish kind of yeah, way. Yeah. Can we talk about Alan Rosenberg, who plays Mike? Yeah, you know, sure. Mike in this? I did find young Mike quite jarring, mm-hmm. and I was kind of reaching for my IMDb thinking this guy done a lot of tv yeah probably. and he has done a lot of tv before mm-hmm. and since but um it was quite cleverly handled that that mike is in these early scenes mike is really kind of brash and unlikable and over the top is that cocky new yorker name but the performance itself is just slightly too broad for me mm-hmm. but and and that paul in these scenes seems quite relaxed and you know, comfortable in himself and just laughing off all this bravado, yeah, which makes you like him more. He's not intimidated at all, is he? Yeah, but he's not intimidating for the viewer either. You're kind, of, you're kind of with him. But then when you, when we cut back to present day and you see Mike much later in life post a serious head injury, um, it's a much more restrained performance. Yeah, it's, it's really, really likeable, well, isn't it? it? The stuff where um, Journey meets up with him again and they're talking is it's, it's really really likable performance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean
1: skipping straight to the end is weird that he just sort of rocks up.
0: And turns into half of a, Rambo. a macho duel, yeah. 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 Rambo Mike. Is he in any of the deleted scenes? I think
1: there was supposed to be a subplot which doesn't appear in any of the deleted scenes but which is mentioned in the um uh commentary track by the biographer and he says that there was a whole sequence of shots with um china camel who's in it and that they're hanging out together and they go to the quarry for like a an overnight camp and to shoot some guns mm. and so when uh, the, the kind of two sets of characters converge she's already there and that, that makes
0: more sense that makes a lot more sense we do get like a one one fragment of a scene where where um Tina Camel's character goes to his trailer and goes in as if they're friends or lovers or something, but that's That's, it.
1: But that's also a strange kind of... So we have the scene with Joan and Mike reunited after 10 years. Mm. Mike says, promise not to tell Paul that you've seen me. And she promises, but then she tells Paul that she's had a dream where she sees Mike, and in that lie we see a, a flashback or an abstraction of Mike and the girl who we see in the Chinese cafe mm. going into a room together like makes no sense at all.
0: I always I didn't think that was intended as part of it. I thought it was just a scene to make Mike seem like he was still in the movie and a more rounded human being.
1: You know, those are some of the sort of things that the film does where you just sit there going, nope. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the next flashback is, is the beginning of the hunting scene where Paul and Mike go hunting for... Whatever little survives around the man-made mountains of the copper mines. Yeah, it's a very odd little ending. This, where Paul pulls out this handmade compass and Mike admires it, and then um, Paul kind of slams it into his hand. Says, "Do you like it? It's yours." And then you yeah. hold on a freeze frame of that and fade through to present day, as if that has great significance. It, it crops up again at the very climax of the film. Yeah, but it just does seem like a kind of yeah, it's a, theme or a subplot that just goes yeah, nowhere. It's, it's a motive that has zero <laughs> zero weight. Um, immediately following the second part of the flashback, which is Joan and Arnold and the coin, um, come back to present day and it's Paul and Danielle at home with their lovely, tame, performing dog. Um, it's a really good scene for sort of building domesticity. But there's a really odd bit at the end for me which doesn't work in terms of storytelling. You, After the dog's done its trick, you kind of fade to black as if it's the end of the scene. And then it comes up with what I thought was his van driving off somewhere. And then he's in his workspace, uh, talking to Fred no, on yeah, the phone. It's,
1: it's Jones. So Jones going off to work as well. This the deleted scenes that are on the disc involve Jones job at the thrift store. Okay. Um, which is what later on puts her on the road to meet Mike, uh, because she's driven quite far out of town to collect some stuff for the thrift
0: store. Okay.
1: Um, and so the deleted scenes do have a commentary because there's no audio left, I think, or they haven't been able to find the audio for them. Mm. And mostly it's just about kind of the the logic of where people are at what time and getting them to where they need to be for the next scene. So it's kind of perfunctory, especially in a film like this, which is so scrappy anyway.
0: Mm. It seems odd to even, if you're going to cut out the scenes of her doing her work to, to, to include... I mean, you don't need to have him in in the office talking to Fred because in a couple of scenes later he's going to go into the diner and start talking about the same thing. You could have just cut straight into that.
1: Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, while we're on the subject of the diner, I just find it really hard to kind of swallow that that diner is like the centre of the community, that this, uh, like, Paul has a shower there at some point and, you know, uh, the cafe owner acts as his kind of go-between for the uh, him and the woman he's having an affair with plus his wife pops in at some point Joan looking for Paul mm. and the diner's owner's son is a cop who's part a of young, the investigation young and, brash cop and, and also feeding Paul information about the investigation and there's kind of all those improbabilities that yeah I but it's
0: it's all kind of crammed into one scene which is one really, space really cluttered as well
1: yeah that's it with the uh, yeah, roast beef. Yeah, <laughs> arty with shots
0: it. of squelching <laughs> roast beef, dripping fluids, and uh, yeah. And also, and this, they, this, sorry, go. On. Yeah, I was
1: just gonna say they must—they must have shot it in a different space or at a different time because all the windows to the cafe are covered in a white film, so you can't see outside either. So you can't even connect it to the streets and the spaces that we've seen throughout yeah. the film. It's just like this abstract bubble.
0: It's one of those things where a more experienced filmmaker, you could say a more conventional filmmaker, but a more experienced filmmaker would read the script and start blocking it out and realise there's an awful lot that needs to be done and explained to you in a short space of time. So, so you would choose perhaps the most expedient way of blocking it to do it, but in this case they've just shot a fair bit of coverage of close-ups and chopped a lot of it together. Yeah,
1: but also what that space means to the people that live in this world, you know, it's mm. where a lot of things are supposed to kind of pivot left and right and, you know, a- alibis are <laughs> a form there and all sorts, you know, it just it seems quite throwaway at the same time.
0: The main note I've got on this, reading directly from my notes, is um, not great with scenes of more than two people. Next we get
1: the cross-cutting sequence between Paul and Anne, the uh, board. Housewife in a mink coat that's always calling him up to fix her satellite dish, mm. and we also see Joan reunited with Mike after ten years.
0: As as a snide aside, I wonder if any of the rich people in in Globe had nice houses. Yeah, all the rich people seem to live in these kind of postmodern hellholes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the eighties, wasn't <laughs> it's, it? It's yeah, it's not even attractively brutalist art- architecture. Mm. It's just no, it's tasteless, isn't it? Yeah, it's bad. We've talked a little bit about um Mike's character in this scene. I do like the way this is a very steady cami scene, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was- the camera's constantly moving. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's nice, it's nice. And, you know, you see, like, some strange of... When they cut into the close-ups, you lose all the, the grain and texture of the film stock. It's like they've switched stocks halfway mm. through the sequence. But
0: Some yeah. of the wider shots are very, very, very soft and filtered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: maybe it's just dealing with that kind of... To get that wide and trying to deal with that harshness of light. Mm. You know, you can easily shade when you get into the close-ups. But I think, yeah, there, they're just like, OK, pop another ND in until, uh, until yeah, that's what you get.
0: And Anne Mason, she gets a special appearance sort of credit. And I had to look her up. Did you recognise her from anything? No. She was in The Keep. Michael oh, Mann's, really? Michael Mann's movie.
1: I like it that she's supposed to be, you know, the aspirational model for the, all the other women <laughs> in, in town. They talk about her hair and her hairdresser and, you know, how everyone yeah, is trying to... Yeah, she's to... the
0: trophyest of the trophy wives, <laughs> Yeah, isn't that's, she? yeah it's, it's
1: very Stepford, isn't it?
0: Again, I've been uncharacteristically quiet about how bad the music is for most of this film but at this point the Anne Mason scenes have got some just dreadful mid 80s bad country and westernish type yeah, right. middle-aged music on it and it just for me it kills a lot of the sexual tension because you've just <laughs> got this bad FM radio music in the background.
1: Yeah, but also there's that sort of really clunky '80s thing where she stood behind him, seducing him, and it's like that old spice or denim or whatever the kind of aftershave was of of the time, where the woman's running her hand down the shirt buttons, yeah, and yeah, heading south, and you know he grabs the hand. You know, I didn't know what I was watching <laughs> at that point, but to be fair, that seduction does kind of. You know the sort of traditional approach doesn't really work with Paul. It's only when you know she gets more kind of provocative and more edgy that he it's gives fun. in. He gives in to the seduction.
0: Yeah, she she actually has to kind of appeal to his absolute animal side by mm. basically bearing her vagina to him, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, that's Yeah, those those three nice cross dissolves I mentioned earlier come at the end of this scene as we've come to the end of these kind of intercut scenes and we just have a quick dissolve between all of the main characters' faces, and then we go into the next, which is... I love that.
1: It's a really nice way of just sort of making sure you understand where the characters are at this Mm. time before
0: things change, before the dynamic shifts. Mm. And it's one of those experimental touches that that instinctively works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, immediately afterwards, there's another domestic scene. The police seem to be closing in on Paul. Uh, Stu, the policeman, comes around um, and talks in his, his kind of semi, on about semi-adolescent the case. way yeah. about the case and talking too much. Um, it's a very odd sequence of s- Stu going to use the bathroom um, and then some extremely unpleasant close-up of him flossing his teeth. Yeah, And then deciding to powder his armpits with Joan's powder puff. I, I guess this has something to say about masculinity and femininity. It just seems like an odd digression. Yeah, I
1: mean, I do find, like, the next bunch of scenes are sort of quite paddy. They're there to sort of establish relationships between other characters.
0: We have the flashback, uh, which is the hunting and the compass, which yeah. I've mentioned before. There, There is an important scene, the um, sex scene by the fire between Paul and Joan, which just kind of nails for the viewer how close they are at this stage in their relationship. Yeah. It does
1: have that... Um, There's a nice flashback incorporated into that as well with them making love 10 years ago and today and you know the intensity is still there.
0: Yeah. Um it's interesting that the the soundtrack has this sort of murderous womp womp noise on yeah. it which comes in at various points usually during the murders but they do use it to carefully kind of underpin what you're about to learn later it, it does have that sound on this sex scene by the fire. Yeah, sure. Um, which is quite interesting in hindsight. I do like the scene with the bitchy housewives, with Joan and her friends, kind of walking around Globe's High Street, mm-hmm. um, and there's all the kind of cutaways to the, the people and the, the townspeople yeah, and, and the stuff going on. Yeah, the hairdresser
1: himself, you know. It's... Yeah,
0: and it's nice also to to round out Joan's character as not you know not necessarily a saint and this kind of earth mother amongst all these. Yeah, and to show quality, that she isn't
1: insular either, you know, yeah. she does have a life in the, in the town, and you know, she's made a life for herself as and part of the does, community.
0: She does kind of. She is quite bitchy about people, and they do have like quite a nice. Yeah,
1: but th- there is something about her being a city girl as well, because you know when we later find out about Paul's affair, you know she's kind of happy to, well not happy to talk about it, but she.
0: She's not know. cowed by yeah, small talk, it.
1: is she? Yeah, yeah, that's it. She doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Joan is driving around town looking for Paul. She's lost track of him and she circles around Anne's house looking for him, looking for his car, can't find it, but then sees it parked in a track off to the side of Anne's desert house and Joan punctures the tyre. She seems to throw away her chewing gum wrapper littering in the middle of the desert and then she seems to throw her handbag away as well, (laughs) doesn't she? Second murder. I like this second murder. I think it's like Really.
0: Did you watch it over and over again?
1: I did, frame by frame. No, oh, I just I think it's like really sort of a quirky murder. I like the sort of uh, little throwback to Peeping Tom, you know, the, the thing with the mirror. I yeah. think that's really nice. I find that really disturbing still. I liked it. Uh, comes barreling into the bathroom where this young lady's uh, getting ready for a bath, mm. grabs hold of her, inverts her, and does a pile driver to knock her out, wraps her up in a towel and then uses uh, a, a really nice pink towel and then uses speaker cable to to bind her into that like um, like a roast beef mm. she just looked like a roast beef I've, I just thought that was sort of really effective and then he st- dunks her in the bath and drowns her
0: yeah there's there's a middle-aged part of me coming out I, I could be quite happy without watching these scenes you, you watch these things when you're younger and you're callous and you can just yeah, yeah. switch off and just think. But as I get older, I just think sexy lady dying horribly is not something necessarily want to watch. Oh, yeah. I, um, I haven't reached that peak. But I'm still, <laughs> I think a
1: couple more years, a couple more murders, and I'll, I'll start to put that behind me.
0: I know this film wouldn't have gained its wider, not just amongst Donald Camel fans, but amongst fans of arty horror. It mm-hmm. wouldn't have gained its wider cult following if it hadn't had the murders shown. Yeah. But I feel it would have been just a stronger film without them.
1: Yeah, but you look at modern horror movies and it's just, you know, it's the one after the other all strung together. This only has actually two serial killer murders and then yeah. it has a sort of chaotic finale.
0: Yeah. No, I was just getting all Daily Mail about it. You know, I just... <laughs> why oh ban, this I, <laughs> ban this filth. Ban this filth. But I just felt watching it this time I could quite happily watch this movie without those scenes and because the things that i like about the film aren't those scenes
1: sure but i do find that second murder like quite unnerving quite horrific you know yeah it feels like a terrifying way to die it's not just slash blood death yeah. you know there's there is a sort of free meditation to it or a you know a,
0: a method a, there's to a
1: it. Yeah, there's a horror to it i think mm-hmm. a genuine horror to it
0: after the second murder, I did like the careful insert of um, Anne Mason in the bath. Yeah, yeah. And then when you cut to Paul, kind of cleaning up after having showered, mm. you know, combing his hair back and stuff, you mm. just assume that he's with her. It's really, really good. Careful. Yeah, yeah. Misdirection with two of shots. St- steps. Yeah, it's yeah. nice. So after another slightly confusing scene at the diner, where Paul seems to be washing up at the back, um, he goes home and Joan thinks she knows what he's been up to, and she's very, very, very angry indeed.
1: He's relegated to the doghouse, isn't he? yeah, and he just says to her, you know I love you, no
0: matter what you think's happened I think at that point he is it feels to me that he's about to confess to the things that he's done, oh really okay, but I do and again praising Cathy Moriarty to the to the stars she's mm-hmm. awesome as as an angry woman in this yeah definitely. just really just about holding it in check Yeah, yeah yeah when the child's gone to school we are going to have a talk about what you've done
1: but that's thwarted isn't it that opportunity for them to do it alone because the cops turn up in the morning and take paul in for questioning after he's slept in the doghouse yeah it's a very
0: so, interesting shot where mendoza arrives and paul gets up to open the door and basically walks walks his groin into camera yeah it's a Crotchy close-up, isn't there?
1: There is also, just at the end of that sequence, Mendoza's stood in one doorway and Paul is stood in the other. It feels like it's from a different film (laughs) because they're both kind of two cool guys, you know, framed by doorways, ready to have a conversation about something. It's really nice. He's, Paul's in his cowboy long johns, isn't he? Slipped a pair of boots on and, and a cowboy hat and that's it. It's a bit like one of those scenes in um, Pat and Billy the Kids, you know, where you just expect like Bob Dylan's music just to come in and be like, and you see those two guys facing each other with wry smiles on their face. It's like, yeah, let's let's take this friendship to the next level.
0: Mendoza's brought Paul in to the local police station. Uh, Mendoza's actually kind of state CID, and Mm -hmm. the the local cops are kind of quite bemused by the fact that they're all friends with Paul, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a semi interrogation at the police station. Such a
1: cosy scene, isn't it? They've got like a hanging plant in the interrogation room, a tiny little table that four of them are kind of squashed around.
0: And then um, through an absolutely beautifully plans cross dissolve you you see joan watching through the one way mirror through the one way mirror yeah that, that's a nice touch it's it, breathtakingly done yeah it? and
1: it really feels like it's going to set up a really sophisticated scene which you know as i've mentioned before is one of the worst kind of technical scenes in the film with you know eyelines that are just so inconsistent that you have no idea who people are looking at yeah and then we cut to big stew who i didn't even know was in the room
0: there's there's a very odd um Incomplete, not quite pared down yet. Editing this, you know, where they, there's the mention of the perf- the pretty sunset or something. Mm-hmm. So where you've where you've got everyone's reaction and you kind of sandwich them all in, but mm-hmm. haven't decided which ones you want yet. But yeah, they they
1: do manage to um, put Joan opposite him in the table for the interrogation. <laughs> you know, like she's suddenly part of the task force, mm-hmm. but it allows her to kind of finish that thought of like, I'm going to tell you what I think you've been doing and you're in shit and she just kind of unloads on him. Be- it-
0: Before we go into that though, having just like, slated what I see as a bad edit, mm-hmm. there's a phenomenal edit where you, you cut outside to Mendoza talking to Joan in front mm. of a monitor playing back part yeah, yeah, yeah. of and then you cut to Joan at the table mm. within the same sentence mm-hmm. Like you, you start a sentence and finish it at the table, and it, yeah, it's yeah. just seamless transition. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's and really it brilliant. Al- you almost don't notice it unless yeah. you're looking for it. It's great.
1: Imagine if the whole film had been crafted <laughs> like that,
0: you know, with that sort of level of detail. But yeah, then Joan's kind of tirade. It's really good, man. It's great. And it's odd seeing um, how natural and how how real it feels. When you, when you see Cathy Moriarty's interview in the extras, mm-hmm. in the documentary, she says no improvisation was allowed at all. It had to be yeah, absolutely... Yeah word perfect for the script. Mm-hmm. But it feels like an improvisation at the table. It feels mm-hmm. like she's just playing it from the heart.
1: Yeah, it's really good.
0: It's really powerful. And she,
1: and I think there's something about her performance and also about her character that I think is part of how she's managed to sort of keep Paul under control up to this point. Not under control. Just, I think he respects her, basically. And yeah. I, th- I think he respects her strength and strength of character. And, you know, at some point later on he says, oh, you're not like those other women... And I, I think, you know, this scene sort of highlights that, you know, the respect that he has for her.
0: I do like the fact that he has almost nothing to say here. There's, there's no lie. He's not lying to her. He's yeah. not trying to defend himself. He's kind of slouched down in his chair, just mm. kind of taking it. Yeah. There's a nice
1: scene where he's walking out later with the cop and he's like, Oh, I really fucked up haven't I?" And the cop's like, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> but yeah, you have, you know,
0: <laughs> um, immediately following you have a, a brief scene with Joan and Danielle at home, Joan seems absolutely wiped out by the experience. Um, the last of the last day or so and then one of the key flashbacks where um mike discovers paul and joan together it's worth flagging up at this point there is the attempt to kind of misdirect you to feel that mike might be the murderer because there is like a pan down at the end of his one of his scenes oh, to you see his, the, he has the, the key tires which are time, identifying yeah, the killer yeah. and also this kind of um, vroom, vroom, vroom music yeah. is it's used on this scene as well where he comes in with a gun and shoots the place up so you do you think that was something that...
1: Well, I guess if they've got the close-up on the tyre, they must have been
0: aiming for that. Yeah, it's, it's because the murder music appears at this point when Mike is at his most irrational. Oh, OK. So there's a suggestion oh, it might be well, Mike. He, Mike Mike's
1: back and he's trying to frame... Yeah, it seems yeah. a bit much. Isn't it?
0: it is, but it's there because it's hmm. a thriller. And in the following scene um, where Mendoza takes Paul, uh, he just says, you know, takes him to the, the second murder scene and says, I just want you to see this, and shows it to him. You also get these cuts quick cut flashbacks to um, Mike's mouth covered in blood. Very, very quick cuts. And it's completely inexplicable at this point, but Mike has blood around his mouth. Oh, okay. Oh, I must the younger miss Mike. That. So um, again, it's more of this misdirection thinking, oh, my God, is this Mike? I quite like
1: in that, um, when they revisit the crime scene that, you know, the ritual compass point motif is laid out, but also like everything is covered in plastic. I'm not sure what that, how that functions in terms of, a crime scene, but it looks nice. It's mm. one of those sort of aesthetic choices that I think adds kind of mystery. And but I think every now and then, you know, the technique and the artifice, it all kind of meets perfectly in a couple of shots in this film. That if yeah. if the rest of it had been as subtle, it would have elevated the film. I think.
0: So I did really like the scene where Paul and Joan kind of make up. The next scene, which is kind of the morning after. I I found Paul's puppy dog enthusiasm a little wearing he's
1: bought the pots and pans that he promised her hasn't he yeah
0: which are very similar to the pots and pans hanging up in the first murder kitchen but i did feel it was real there is you know when you've had a fight when you've had a big fight with someone there is that kind of relief of just both of you just letting it go Mm -hmm. and and trying to trying to make out and she she's not 100 percent. you know she's happy and relieved that they're on you know they're moving on a, a little some of the tensions relieved she does say she needs about half an hour to get herself together and then goes yes. and throws up and and stuff but i did i did like the, the reality of that scene
1: yeah i think so but i i think she clearly still loves him but i think you know she is like physically sickened by the reality as well and especially when she's kind of looking at those pots and pans like oh my god am i living a life where these pots and pans are actually like really important mm. signifiers to my relationship and i think that Kind of reality for a, a city girl, a sophisticated city girl, just puts her on her knees, vomiting into the
0: toilet. In the bathroom, she makes a key discovery. I guess she is a piece of twine poking up from the from the wooden surround of the bathtub. Can I just can I just flag something up here? A mm-hmm. wooden bathtub surround. It's a really bad idea. Those
1: were the days, weren't they?
0: It's just within a year, it's going to be warped and, and yeah, yeah, but stained and I think and people did
1: that in the eighties. I think we might have even had a temporary wooden bathtub that quickly warped and rotted.
0: I think we had some wood panelling around <laughs> around the bottom of the bath, but mm. not as the surround. Um, so she rummages around under the bathtub surround and finds packaged bits of bodies. Trophies. Trophies.
1: She makes a horrifying discovery and decides not to call the police. and you know which is one of those uh, conceits of the film that I really liked that she wasn't just like I'm going to turn him in you know I love it that she makes this horrific discovery there's a really nice as she sort of backs away from the bath on her hands and knees there's a really nice steady cam move as it sort of tilts from one side to the other as we're kind of with her as she's kind of I guess trying to weigh up What's the best thing to do, and yeah. and I think she just wants to
0: understand. And also, you know, you you have to you have to figure that at some point, as soon as you bring in the police, it's going to end. Yeah. Like there's there's no there's never going to be any chance to to discuss or talk mm. or, or or reason. The police are going to get involved at some point. It is going to end. So if you want to understand it, then now is the time. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So this scene, Paul's revelation scene, is actually brilliant.
1: I like both of them in this as well. I mm. I love how. Like she's looking at him and listening to him and is there's no sort of judgment it's just like the question she can't quite piece it all together you know mm. i think there's something really interesting about this idea that you know he's a serial killer but it's not like it, it's something that's been happening for the 10 years of their relationship because we see two murders well there
0: reg- are there are a lot of murders that are mentioned that have happened out of state but
1: it's only 3 so if he's doing you know let's say one every two weeks it's still a recent kind of Digression for him from the norm, so mm. I think that's why it it still feels quite fresh for him as well. You know, you get all of his kind of post murder bliss and uh, this idea that he's kind of switching between two l- layers of existence. Let's say one where he is the the killer and you know has this kind of worldview, and the second one where he's the family man, which is it's becoming, I guess, more of a mask.
0: Yeah, I see. One of the things that I I kind of felt the opposite about his character. I didn't think that there was there was two sides to his personality That and he, he kind of, at the end of the movie, I was quite glad that he didn't seem to flip from one to the other. His weird digressions and the weird things that he was saying, obviously they're more extreme but they didn't feel like they were coming from a different person.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, totally, totally. It's a really over-the-top scene but it does feel that he's just kind of shifting through the gears now on his yeah. kind of personality and you know, he thinks he's reached some sort of clarity and, you know, the rest of us are kind of in the dark.
0: The the, the writing and the performance perfectly nails that feeling where something which is intuitively has clarity for him is impossible to explain. So, yeah, he's so, trying to so, articulate yeah, it. He's isn't trying he? to sounds articulate like, it. And like using, a, yeah, nuts. Yeah, it's like, like and he says something out, out in the universe, or the known universe, um, yeah. and these little, little, Bits and pieces mm. of, of it's when you
1: have like a theory that you've uh, lived with on your own in your own mind, yeah. and you know you're absolutely convinced of its of its uh, of, you're absolutely certain of how correct you are until you say it out loud yes. and people look at you like what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about and you really struggle to make sense make it make sense for anyone else mm-hmm. and he definitely sort of hits that
0: there was um, something in I th- I th- it must be a common thing in misogyny you know, he goes into about men and women being completely opposite yeah, and, sure. and men being I don't know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, like men being positives and women being like negatives mm-hmm. and he, he compares women to black holes to black can, that is something I've actually come across previously. You know the, the comic writer Dave Sim, Cerebus the Ardvark, yeah, yeah. In the nineties, um, after years of isolation and doing this work. Non stop, and also chemical experimentation and stuff. Mm-hmm. He he started developing anti-feminist theories, which he brought to the work, and which he started publishing in essays at the back. Okay. He rationalised that men were the producers and creators and bright lights of, of creativity, and women were just like a negative black hole source that sucks in this uh, this energy. Mm-hmm. It seems to be like a common trait in, in misogynists. Mentalists. Yeah, this is the analogy they reach for, that men are the ones who pour forth and women are the ones who absorb and, and deaden. And then the next scene is the, of them having, again, it was really kind of truthful, that kind of messy mid-argument, mid calamity sex
1: yeah it's really nice and I like how she's looking at him you know it's just this sort of desperation now in her face just to sort of understand what's happening and he's kind of you know he's using his physicality to cage her on the bed as well yeah but it
0: isn't a marital rape I mean it's no
1: no not at all I just think it's you know when you're in that tragic grey area of misunderstanding and loss and pain and I, I just think it's you know, it's, it's kind of...
0: It's yeah. really well handled. It reminded me, or it should be vice versa, but it, it reminded me of that similar scene in History of Violence. You know, there's the two key scenes in that where there's one of them early in the film yeah, where yeah. it's kind of like a playful, consensual thing. And there's the one later in the film as things are sort of collapsing around them where you know they, they have fairly brutal sex on the stairs. It yeah, is,
1: yeah. Is, I love that sequence. It was one of those... Uh, you can see the technique, you know, how each side of the set was removable so that they could get the different angles and the coverage but mm. I, I really liked the, the execution of that second sex scene in uh, history of violence
0: so from this point i would say um although the film kind of remains interesting mm. it is it is kind of moving into thriller mode isn't it
1: well i think yeah he's going on like a uh, it's like a murder suicide thing isn't he? he wants to kill his family and then kill himself that's kind of what he's doing there. he's Finishing the journey, and we see him emerge from the closet, which I, I quite like. He he seems to have this closet at the back of which he's stockpiled loads and loads of weapons. At one point, he comes out with a Bowie knife. The next point, we see that he's emptied it out, and there's like machine guns and mm. like you know explosives and yeah, all, was, all sorts of stuff tucked thinking, in back there.
0: I mean, this this kind of last act. Is, this is the sort of thing, you could pair it in a double bill with near dark. It's kind of you mm-hmm. know eccentric desert action with 80s yeah, soundtrack.
1: Yeah. But I love his look, you know, the way he's kind of pulled his hair back into like two funny little ponytails and painted the lower half of his face this kind of really bold red colour mm. and strapped on all the explosives for the suicide vest. I mean, it's taken on a different connotation now, but, you know, this idea that he was ready to reduce himself to...
0: Atoms. Yeah, that's
1: him to on a molecular level, just to sort of disappear like that. I thought that was you know really exciting.
0: I did like the little touches of I don't call it black humor, but I, I did like Danielle's dialogue in this scene. Mm-hmm. She has like a sequence of little funny lines. Yeah, and yeah, she's talking to um Joan through the door. It's like, um, Daddy exploded the bed. Daddy's wearing a bunch of hot dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when they when they get out of the building, uh, when they get out of the house and get into the desert, and you end up mm-hmm. in in kind of that concrete structure near the mm-hmm. quarry I was trying to put together what it reminded me of I was trying to remember you know the kind of cat and mouse thing yeah and the father ranting sort of sort of sardonic domestic stuff like I'm always it's cleaning like The Shining? It's, it's, that was it and right, it eventually
1: yeah. came to me it was The Shining. Yeah, yeah. I mean in that she throws Danny out of the window doesn't she? Mm. And Yeah, there's definitely a couple of parallels. Apparently um, when they finished the film they looked at the edit and they thought the third act was too slow so uh, Terry Rawlins just went in and cut two frames off the beginning and end of every single shot in the third act just to, to speed it up yeah good technique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, I quite like that it was like oh yeah okay that's a good fix
0: how did you feel I I felt that in this section again I, I did say it kind of stepped up into thriller mode did you think his characterization was consistent did you think that his kind of ranting and, and Jack Torrance stuff was a natural evolution of where he was in the previous scenes
1: well, I think he's he's reached a kind of a point where he can see the end now of this uh, killer journey that he's on. I think he's just, you know, I think to maintain that would require a, a level of intelligence and ability that he just doesn't possess. You know, yeah. the, the cops are close. The wife knows. You know, you're you're pretty much going to end up either in a some sort of gunfight with the police, or you're going to end up in jail, or you're going to die. So. You, if you go out on your own terms, at least you're kind of fulfilling some kind of
0: yeah. You, you're still going to be Hemingway, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So Rambo, Mike. It's
1: so so peculiar. I mean, it, once you accept it, this idea that film is a bookend for this kind of three-way love triangle that is kind of unresolved for one of the characters, for Mike. So him kind of rocking back up and somehow being this this sort of saviour, non-saviour.
0: Well, I, I do like the way that um, he <laughs> turns it. up and you would think, oh, you know, he's the saviour. But Joan just backs out of the whole thing. She just takes the gun, throws it down a yeah. deep hole and says, oh, I really sure know how to pick him. Yeah, that's and just it. leaves these two guys to their testosterone fight.
1: Yeah, that's it. But I don't think... The film has quite set that relationship up between Mike and Paul. You know the way when Mike turns up, Paul's like, "Oh, how nice to see you again. Yeah. Do you remember you owe me, uh, you know, fifteen bucks for whatever? You know, it just it didn't make sense that after ten years they would step straight back into that very brief." Relationship that they had
0: and it also it's it's extremely jarring since you've set Mike up as somebody who's you're trying to misguide the audience into thinking he could be a killer but you've also set him up as somebody who's quite grounded and a bit more level-headed well, and... So
1: he's had a head injury so he's supposed to be a little bit kind of special at the same time yeah
0: but he's he just seems a lot more mellow and for him to suddenly turn up wearing a Native American blanket <laughs> and a machine gun <laughs> and a machine gun it's... yeah it's
1: not even like he's got a, a knife or something it's, yeah. he's properly like armed to the teeth but it, somehow it gets away with it, though. Mike turning up is really sort of abstract, but once he's there, I quite I kind of like the section where he marches Paul out onto the quarry floor for some, for some reason, mm. um, instead of, you know, just backing him up far enough to shoot him. Uh, and then they kind of have a weird conversation where it becomes more about Mike and Paul and less
0: about Joan. Joan seems to have fallen back into sort of a into love with Paul she's trying to tell him maybe because he's about to die clearly that she's trying to tell him that she loves him and trying to yeah, back him off from I, what I he's think, doing but,
1: but that is the most interesting stuff in the film that she still has this kind of love for him after all of these revelations and you know that sometimes love can transcend the horrors of everyday life you know i th- i thought that stuff was really powerful and and quite terrifying in itself But then she kind of gets sidelined because this sort of macho power play between Paul and Mike, which, yes, they have some history 10 years ago, but it's like some random person you meet for a day or two Mm. and then forget about.
0: I found it odd watching this again, that there's no real... Again, in a a more conventional thriller, you'd expect some last-minute tussle, but there really isn't. I mean, it's just... Paul at gunpoint isn't it there's there's no threat of him regaining the upper hand at all is there it's just no
1: I mean he is strapped with explosives so he kind of always has the, the upper tr- hand the trump card yeah exactly <laughs> yeah there's a weird thing where he kind of when they walk out into the, the quarry and he does his kind of um, echo sounding mind tuning yeah thing. yes and that's a really nice moment again I just like it when he does that sort of hm, that noise <laughs> do, and he, do it has again. That, he has that look on his face yeah it's really cool and Obviously, seeing it as a 14-year-old, I remember that stuff being really prominent and that it was part of, <laughs> part of the story. Like, it was really relevant. And in fact, it's, it's not. It's just a really nice kind of little quirk. Character digression. Yeah. Yeah, and then you have this sort of weird uh, macho posturing between the, the two men, which basically ends with um, Mike machine-gunning Paul in the face uh, after blasting out his legs. But he manages to light the fuse. I forgot it's on a fuse. I thought it was on like a suicide bomber trigger. But yeah, um, yeah on an on a old-fashioned fuse, which is behind his back. <laughs> like, If I was going to build myself a suicide vest, I wouldn't put the fuse behind my back.
0: And then Joni kind of dives into the water as if that's going to shield her from like a megaton explosion. I mean, it's a pretty big explosion. It's a big it? explosion. It leaves a like a 20-foot crater. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully she managed to swim a fair distance away. Yeah, I'm I trying to... Tr- I mean, we've been kind of dancing around it. I guess we have to kind of look at it as Donald Camel exploring masculinity and misogyny. I think he's really guilty
1: of that. I think he may not have been like a physical alpha male, but I, I don't think he's that respectful of...
0: Yeah, I'm just tr- just trying to think of how his theorising plays out in this scene, what this scene's supposed to represent in, in those terms, because mm. it, it's clearly intentionally this way. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's a troubled scene. Um, I'm just wondering what's being said here. Is it that, that misogyny and, and, and macho behaviour is a dead end that will just lead to extinction? It's destructive isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And that it sidelines all femininity in the process? I think I'll go with that rather than read any more about Donald Camel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um Okay, and a an a epilogue in the diner.
1: Yeah, I think that's just to sort of reassure us that, you know, not Mendoza was a competent cop, that Joan yeah. is alive and not blown to pieces, and that uh, Danielle...
0: Isn't scarred for life. Yeah,
1: yeah, looks quite happy. But I have to say, for, like, for, for all of his faults, you know, I think this is kind of a key with films I really like, is that they're full of faults, but there's just something about... You know, maybe it's the timing of the collaborators, and you know the the reach of the ambition. But sometimes, I've, I just there's a, a couple of really scrappy movies that you know, are full of faults, but I just mm. really love them. And this is one of them.
0: Would you recommend it? I would. Yeah,
1: yeah. I've I've given a Blu-ray to a few people um, as as a gift, and just said like you know. Have you, have, See, you heard, it, have you heard from them no again? i haven't yeah <laughs> no, i never saw them again my kids <laughs> uh yeah i would recommend it and you know i uh it's one of those you know i i bought you a copy of it just this christmas mm. and you already had one and it's one of those that uh, i'll palm that off to somebody probably over the next week or so mm. and i'll finish reviewing all the special features but if i'm ever stuck for a gift for somebody who's got an eccentric taste in films most people i think it's still very off the radar so Mm. yeah yeah i would recommend it and you know (laughs) I'd happily see what people come come back with you know
0: i i would find this a tough one to recommend um not because there's anything wrong with it just because i wouldn't want to elevate it because it's part of the donald camel filmography because I don't really think it's that exceptional a filmography and yeah, I yeah. don't idolise him in the way yeah, that people agreed. do, which is part of the reason that this movie has the status that it had outside of the context that I experienced it in, which was the context that made it popular, that made it a cult film. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if that exists anymore. You know, I'm not denigrating, I think it's, you know, still a fascinating film and I agree with you, I like those movies that kind of swing for the fences and don't don't, always land but are interesting and land often enough and i do like the fact that that a lot of the stuff that's sort of secondary in horror movies is actually the best thing about this yeah yeah um but i I don't know if i could if i could express that to anyone well enough (laughs) to make them watch it
1: i've got your present now just sit down for an hour (laughs) while i explain why i bought you this present but i mean that's the nice thing about recording this episode maybe is you can tell people listen to this episode watch this
0: tower movie with this two hour supplement of me and Shane talking yeah
1: listen to this and if you want to watch it you can have my copy